Well, sooner or later, almost all leaders have their authority questioned. Even some of the greatest leaders throughout history have had their authority questioned. Jesus is no different. In this particular passage, Jesus faced a direct challenge to his authority from the religious leaders. In fact, you'll, you'll see here when we read in Matthew 21, it, we, we see the chief priest and the elders, kind of the, the religious group and the political group coming together to, to, to challenge Jesus' authority. They were the top leadership in Israel. And as we read earlier here in Matthew 21, they didn't appreciate him coming in and, and, uh, driving out money changers and, overturning tables and getting rid of these people who are selling animals there in the temple. In this particular instance, he, he didn't argue with them. Jesus is amazing in his responses. What, what he does here, he just can, simply just kind of throws the ball back into their court and asks them a question. And so in these final chapters of Matthew, not just Matthew 21, but the next few to come, we see Jesus is on this mission. He's, he's stated that I'm going to Jerusalem. And he he said at least three times, I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be mocked and scorned. I will be crucified. And I will die and I will rise again. That's his mission. And he was determined to do this. He set in his purpose. And the opposition, of course, they don't like this. They're setting up all kinds of roadblocks in Jesus' way and Jesus, in his fashion, just kind of drives through these roadblocks. He refused to be a victim. And, in fact, he insisted on being what he was. Matthew's showing that Jesus is king. He is the Messiah. He is the the promised one that the Old Testament talks about. He is the king. And so in this first little passage we're going to look at here, Matthew 21, we see that the king's authority is questioned the king's authority is questioned let's read together matthew 21 starting in verse 23 verse 23 and when he that's jesus entered the temple the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Stop there. That ends that paragraph. So in this particular passage, we see Jesus' authority is being questioned. Uh, we see that Jesus has returned to the temple. Uh, apparently, this is the the next day uh, after he's 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 done havoc. He's wreaked havoc there in the temple, so he's returned to the temple. And since he, he's done this, this was the place where people would come to 
hear the scriptures taught, and so Jesus has come to teach the scriptures and, and teaches exactly what he did. But Jesus is also returning to do battle. He's, he knows that his opponents were there waiting for him. He's purposely come to kind of stir things up. He, uh, but although this is not the particular day yet for him to die, it's still early in the Passion Week. But he, he's, he's come to present him, himself as, as not only king, but he's, he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. I don't know if you notice this or not, but who are Jesus' opponents? The Bible says that we, we have mentioned here several dif- different categories. In verse 23, it talks about these chief priests and the elders of the people. They're coming to Jesus as he's teaching. So like I said, this is we got the chief priests. They're kind of the leaders of the religious group there in Israel. And the elders are kind of the uh, leaders of the political group. So we got the, the politicians and the, the, the priests, the chief priests coming together, working together against Jesus. They're Jesus' opponents. And they want to know who gives Jesus the right to do these things that he does. This was not the normal thing in Israel to do. Uh, you, you didn't become a priest unless the, the homeboys, so to speak, gave you that authority. You, you had to get the piece of paper and the authority from them to be able to do any teaching. You had to sit under the rabbis. And then once you've gone through all the classes and you, you, you graduated and the rabbis thought you were worthy, then you would get to teach. That was the system in Israel. Jesus just bypasses the system because he has an inherent authority. And so they come along. They don't like what Jesus is doing, and they interrupt his teaching to challenge his authority. And since Jesus, by the way, knew they would not accept his answer, imagine Jesus just telling them the truth. How do you think they're going to respond? They wouldn't respond very well to that. They probably would have tried to crucify him at that point if, if he actually said the truth at this point. And so Jesus knows, and, and he knows they're not going to accept his answer, so he just refused to add fuel to their fire. Instead, what Jesus does here is he actually traps these guys who are trying to trap him. It's beautiful just seeing what Jesus does here. And so what Jesus does is he asks them the source of John the Baptist's authority. And it's interesting, they didn't immediately respond. Did you know that? Did you see that? They're like, ooh, that's a good question. Uh, hold that thought. And they, they just kind of walk over here, and they're whispering amongst themselves, you know, uh, if we say this, well, that's probably not going to go over too well. Okay, that's, what's the other answer we could give? And they're whispering amongst themselves. Well, if we give that answer, then all the people are going to get mad at us because they believe John was a prophet. And so they just copped out, didn't they? They didn't like either of the answers. Jesus had trapped the trappers in their words, and so they just simply copped out and said, well, we don't know. So when they refused to answer his question, Jesus refused to answer theirs. You see that in verse 27. So why did the leaders of Israel refuse to answer Jesus' question? (laughs) Well, they didn't want to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't want to acknowledge that he's the king. He has this inherent 
authority. They didn't want to even acknowledge the Messiah's forerunner, who of course was John the Baptist. And so if they acknowledged John the Baptist as the Messiah's forerunner, and to acknowledge him as actually being sent from God, then they would have to acknowledge that John was right, and that everything John said about Jesus was right, and of course, they didn't want to do that. What about you, though? What about you? Have you listened to the testimony of John and the claims of Jesus? As we've been going through the book of Matthew, have you listened to the Holy Spirit speaking here? You've seen the evidence for Jesus' claims. The question is, are you going to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God? He is deity and man, two natures united into one person forever. And are you going to follow him as your Lord? So my friend, if if you're a non-Christian, and you're you're hearing this, if you're a non-Christian, why don't you become a Christian today? Why not? Acknowledge Jesus as Son of God and as your Lord. And if you're if you're one of these people, for whatever reason, you're you're hesitating here. You're kind of in the chief priest elder category. Well, let me tell you more about the authority of Jesus. Number one, Jesus' authority is God's authority. Jesus' authority is God's authority. Since Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and in earth, this can only mean that He is God. And it also means He speaks with God's authority. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And then He tells us, because of that, we're to go make disciples and teach. This is something we, we dare not take it lightly, because Jesus' authority is God's authority. Number two. Jesus' authority validates his teaching. Because he has this authority been given to him, everything he says is authoritative. Everything. Unlike the religious leaders of Jesus' day, Jesus taught with intrinsic authority. Which is why you see Jesus all the time saying, You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Jesus didn't need to quote rabbis. He didn't need to quote the Mishra. Or the, or, or any of the other writings in, in, in Jewish history. Everything Jesus said was true and could be trusted wholeheartedly. Number three, Jesus has authority to forgive sin. Which is why you see Jesus, he, he'll just walk up to a lame man and say, you know, your sins are forgiven. You know, stand up and walk. How, how can he do that if he didn't have that authority? Well, this is the most important point here because sins are greatest problem. Jesus is showing he has this, this innate ability and the authority to do that. And so he needs to do this because sin actually keeps us from God. It's our greatest problem. Those are just a few reasons why we should listen to Jesus. We need to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. Well, the leaders of Israel, they, they didn't want to acknowledge Jesus' authority. They wanted to be the authorities themselves. They didn't like this, this, this guy from, from Galilee coming in on their territory. And so the result is they ended up perishing in their sins. 
And sadly, many people today perish for exactly the same reason. They refuse to acknowledge Jesus' authority. They cling to their own supposed authority. And so when you talk to somebody and you, you, you evangelize, you witness to somebody, what do they often do? They cling to their authority, whatever that is. You say, what do you believe? You, you know, you're make, everybody has a faith. What is their faith? What's your authority, what's your faith attached to here? Well, science or, you know, whatever it might be. They have their authority. They're, they're clinging to that. And, and often people refuse to come to Jesus. They don't want to get rid of that authority for the, for Jesus. So what, what should be true, uh, of, of, uh, these people here should be true of us. Should be true of the people we witness to. Well, these people were clinging to their authority, refusing to come to Jesus. And, and it doesn't need to be that way. They could have repented of their sin. They could have put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they didn't. And so, my friend, I exhort you, I beg of you, don't do that. Don't be like these chief priests and elders. Don't cling to your own authority. Instead, come to Jesus, acknowledge Jesus' authority, and ask Him to save you from your greatest problem, your sin. Now, I want you to see how the next couple paragraphs in Matthew 21 are, are really pointing to this idea of, of Jesus' authority. I want you to see how Jesus is going to illustrate His point here by using a couple parables. I think there's three parables. The third one goes into chapter 22. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll look at chapter 22. So we got, we got the parable of the two sons and the parable of the wicked tenants, or some have called it the parable of the evil farmers. Now each of these parables serve to answer the, the question of Jesus' authority. So these are really illustrating what's going on here in this, in this paragraph. So that's, uh, first of all, look at the parable of the two sons and learn a very important truth here. here here's, here's, I think, what Jesus is trying to teach us that the king's desire is obedience. The king's desire is obedience. You've probably heard that saying that your talk talks and your walk talks, but your talk talks, or sorry, your walk talks louder than your talk talks. I, I had a feeling I was going to mess that up. I should have put it up there on the screen. The basic idea, though, is this, that your actions speak louder than your words. Your actions speak louder than your words. Just think about that. What's your boss going to think when you go to work tomorrow and you say, I love this job. I, I, want, I want to keep this job. And then you go around and the way, the way you act at work shows the exact opposite. I mean, you start trashing the place, you're swearing, you're throwing stuff around. You, you, you just sit there and you refuse to go to work, right? What is the boss to think about that? Your words are saying you love the job, you want to keep the job, but your actions just say the exact opposite. What do you think the boss is going to believe? Of course, the boss is going to, he's going to believe, he's not going to believe your words when your actions are saying the exact opposite. <laughs> well, look what uh, Jesus says here in his parable, starting verse 28. 
Verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So again, I think the point here is that the king desires obedience more than just words. Sure, he would love to have the words matching up with the obedience, but we see we see two different sons here. Actually, there's a third one I'll mention in a moment. But notice, first of all, the father asked his two sons to work in his vineyard. The father owns the vineyard. He has sons, and he tells them to work. One son, he says... He, he, he's, he's not going to work in the vineyard, but later on he actually goes, he goes and obeys his father. The other son says that he will obey his father and go work in the vineyard, but does he actually go and do it? No. He, ne- he never actually goes, so he disobeys his father. And there is this implication, there's a an unmentioned third son here who actually does promise to obey and then follows through. And of course, Jesus is referring to himself. So what's the conclusion? Well, it's interesting. One, one of the things we, we should note here is that the father, by the way, who represents God the Father, gave both sons the same exact instructions. Did you notice that? He talks to both of them. And he says, go and work in my vineyard. So they get the same instructions. There's no favoritism here. There's no prejudice going on. The father is not showing favoritism to one of his sons here. They got the same instructions. Both sons started on a level playing field. Same opportunities to obey or disobey. Who obeyed? Well, it's interesting, the chief priests and elders got the right answer. And Jesus acknowledges that they got the right answer. It's interesting that uh, you got, Jesus talks about the, the evil tax collectors and prostitutes. They're the ones who actually obeyed. You see that in verse 31? So these, these tenants, or the, sorry, the, the, the son who actually obeys is, is kind of the equivalent of tax collectors and prostitutes. At first they said no. But eventually they, they come into the kingdom. They come into the vineyard and work. Then on the other hand, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're the ones who are like the son who said, sure, but they don't actually obey. They don't do the father's will. They disobeyed the father. That's what we see in verse 32. Yes, they were active in all sorts of religious matters. They were religious, Jesus says, but they were lost. They never entered the kingdom because they refused to do the Father's will. They did not believe on Jesus. They were not working in God's vineyard. They were working in their own little vineyard, 
but not God's vineyard. <laughs> they love their own authority. They love their reputation and their, their place in life, their wealth. And so they're building their own reputations, their own kingdom, and erecting their own little kingdom. Not God's, but their own. And Jesus is clearly teaching that actions are more significant than our words. Oh, we might come on Sundays and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. And then on Monday we go to work and we show we don't love Jesus because we don't obey His commands. Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commands. So it's not enough to come and say and sing and say this sort of stuff. The king desires obedience. So I ask, which category are you in here? There's only two categories. You're either in the disobedient category or the obedient. Which, how do you know which one you're in? Jesus said, the obedient one is the one who does the Father's will. You are the one who obeys Jesus' commands. So the fruit of true religion is doing the Father's will. And then in the next parable, we learn that the rejected son is actually the exalted king. The one who is rejected is Jesus, the exalted king. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dung a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them. That's Jesus, by the way. So finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, or heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So in the parable of the tenants or the evil farmers here we see that the rejected son's actually the exalted king it's it's jesus christ there's several main actors here i just want to make sure we understand what, what's going on here 
Uh, of course, we don't want to necessarily talk about all the various details of a parable. Not all the details are, uh, are that significant. But certainly the main actors here are. We have a, number one, we have a landowner. Landowner represents God the Father. We have a son. Who, who the, the, the landowner, the father, sends his son to the vineyard. That's Jesus. There are servants that are mentioned here. Those were the Old Testament prophets. And, and, and of course, that would include John the Baptist, last of the Old Testament prophets. So what's going on here? A landowner spends considerable time. He spends his his labor, his, his, his money is invested in developing a vineyard. And then he leases that vineyard out to some tenants. And over a period of time, the landowner sends these men to gather his share of the crop. He's expecting a return on his investment. Well, the godless tenants beat and stone these servants. Remember, they're the prophets. And then they kill the landowner's son which is Jesus. The landowner then destroys these wicked tenants. Then he hires other tenants whom he can actually trust. And as you think about this, you you see in verses 40 and 41, uh, there's this huge blow against the credibility of these religious leaders and these politicians. The leaders of Israel had this huge blow against their credibility. They fancied themselves to be the big shot leaders of Israel, the big time leaders of Israel. They thought they were actually the custodians of Israel, but in reality they were not. It's interesting, in Psalm 118, Jesus actually quoted from Psalm 118 here, in verse 42, a direct quote from Psalm 118 where it says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So David is predicting in Psalm 118, hundreds of years before Christ comes, that this rejection would occur when the Messiah came. So it should not have been a surprise. The Bible says that Christ would be rejected. Jesus himself also said that, and that they would uh, kill Jesus. So not only had the leaders neglected their mission here, not only were they fulfilling their their God-ordained duty, but they also rejected God Himself. They rejected God in several ways. They, number one, killed the Old Testament prophets, people like John. And in the end, they end up killing God's own Son, Jesus Christ. They should have repented in the face of the truth. Jesus Himself says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, in the life. They should have repented in the face of truth, but instead they just decided to remove the truth. When you don't like the truth, that's one of the things you can do, right? If you don't like the truth, just remove it. Right? I mean, this has happened around the world. If you don't like the Ten Commandments hanging on the wall, you remove them, right? If they're convicting, just get rid of it. And that's what they did with Jesus. Just remove the truth, and then you can just kind of continue on in your self-denial. And as a result, we see in verses uh, 43 through 46 here that Jesus actually removes the privileges of the kingdom from Israel. So what's the connection between these two parables? There is one. In fact, there are several connections. 
Jesus is using those parables, again, pointing to His authority. He's the Son here. Well, let me just point a few things out. Each has to do with a vineyard, doesn't it? Each of the parables talks about a vineyard, which, of course, represents God's kingdom. But there's also a progression from the first parable to the second parable. In the first parable, the fault of the second son is his hypocrisy. He's a hypocrite. Says one thing, does another. A classic example of a hypocrite. He said he would obey, but he chose to disobey. And in the story of the tenants here, the disobedient spirit of these religious leaders is worse than hypocrisy. What we see here in these tenants is they're, they're so hardened to the truth, they're so hardened to Jesus, that they actually murder the landowner's son, which of course is Jesus. So Jesus began this parable by telling how a landowner planted a vineyard. If you remember, it says the landowner plants a vineyard, he, he, he protects the vineyard, he puts up a wall. Often they would build these walls by picking up stones out of the land, and then they would build up this wall to protect it. Uh, the, the landowner dug a wine press to, to squish the grapes, to get the juice out. He built a watchtower. And so clearly he's, he's speaking to a Jewish audience here. Israel would have understand. The, the people in the temple certainly would have understand the imagery that Jesus was using here. Because Israel was the vine that Jesus was talking about. And, and in case you don't believe me, I'll give you one Old Testament example to prove this. Okay, So Israel would have understood this. Here's an example. In Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, it says, and this is talking about God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. Let's just stop there for a moment. Who did God bring out of Egypt? The children of Israel, right? The Israelites. God brought them out of Egypt when, when He built them up to, I don't know, a couple million people or whatever it was. God brought them out of Egypt. You, that's God, drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Clearly imagery talking about Israel. Israel is, is, is the vine that Jesus is talking about here. Now I know, you say, well, okay, that, that's nice. That's for Israel. So what does that have to do with me? I know, so, some of us who are Christians, we might be tempted to dismiss a parable like this, thinking it, you know, that only applies to Israel. That has nothing to do with me. Well, if that is your particular inter- interpretation, you're actually misreading Jesus' words. I want you to just think about this for a moment. Think about your life. Hasn't God planted us in our lands? Is it a mistake what family you were born into and what country you live in and you're a citizen of? Of course not. God is sovereign over all of that. God planted you exactly where you are. Hasn't God watered you? Hasn't God blessed you? Of course He has. Hasn't God built a watchtower for you? Is God protecting you and watching over you? Of course He is. Hasn't God sent His servants to care for your soul? Yes, He has. The Bible says in Ephesians that God has gifted to His church 
evangelists and pastors, gifted men and women who, who, who teach us and help us. So yes, God has sent His servants to care for our souls. So the answer to all those questions is yes. The same God who is watching out for Israel and caring for them is the same God who cares for you. He hasn't changed. God has done all these things and, and certainly more. Yet, what have we done to God? Are we always faithful to God? No, of course not. We haven't been faithful to God all of the time. In our flesh, we've hated God. In our flesh, we, we would actually be just like these people here. We would destroy God's Son in our flesh. That's what we want to do. So we're no different from them. So what's to be done with these kind of people? What's to be done with, with these kind of people? Well, this, It's the same that the, the chief priests and elders said. Same thing. They, they answered right. That's the question that Jesus, by the way, asked the, the, the ones who were listening to his parable. What, what is to be done with these people? What's to be done with these evil tenants, these, these, these farmers who killed the prophets and the landowner's son? Of course, Jesus could have given the answer himself. Jesus knew the answer. Jesus wasn't asking because he didn't know the answer, but he's wanting to draw the answer out of them. And so he's, what he does here is he turns to the very people he was accusing of being bad tenants and asks them what the owner would do when he returns. What's the answer? Well, the people replied rightly here, and they said, he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. He's going to kill them. And then he's going he's to give his farm to someone else whom he can trust. So what would you say if Jesus asked you the same question? Let's just get personal here for a moment. What would you say if Jesus came to you and said, what should the owner of the vineyard do? God the Father says, hey, wait, you killed my prophets. You killed my son. Maybe not you personally, but in our flesh we would have done the same. What should the owner of the vineyard do? Well, just think about this. Unless you're a hypocrite, or unless you're just ignorant, you need to answer. You you would answer the the same way the Pharisees did. So what's the solution? Well, here's the solution. You stand with Jesus. Everything that Jesus stands for, you need to stand for. You stand alongside Jesus. Everything that He is, you accept His authority. You don't question His authority. You obey it. You don't be don't be a rejecter of Jesus. Instead, you choose Jesus Christ in all areas of your life, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. Always choose Jesus. There's only two options. You're either against Jesus Christ or you're against Jesus Christ. Only two options. That's it. You're either for Him or against Him. Which one are you? It's a simple matter. It's not so simple necessarily to, to live it out in our life, though, is it? As you know, in your families, your workplace, in this world, uh, we, we have three enemies, don't we? If you're a believer, you have three enemies. Your, your own flesh, your indwelling sin, fights you. This, this world, this system that we live in, fights us. 
And of course, the devil and Satan, who is Satan, he doesn't like us, and he walks about this earth seeking whom he may devour. So our, our three enemies are are against Christ. Because they're against Christ, they're going to try to stop followers of Christ. It's not easy, is it? Sometimes you might come home as you as you've been out in the world, you might feel like you need to take a spiritual shower sometimes. You ever feel that way? I often feel that way. I need a spiritual shower. <laughs> Boy, I need need the Holy Spirit to shower me with his word. It's not easy. Not easy at all. Sometimes you might need to write letters, write letters to editors. <laughs> Sometimes you might need to tell the boss, sorry boss, can't do that, can't do that. Jesus tells me to do this, and I have to obey Jesus. I will obey you as long as it's not unbiblical, immoral, or illegal. Sometimes you might have to do that. Sometimes you might have to tell a family member, say, sorry, I can't do that. I'd love to go there with you, but I can't. Sometimes you have to choose to stand with Jesus because what your family members or your boss or your workmates or neighbors are trying to tell you is actually against Jesus. So the choice is yours. So the solution here is you stand with Jesus, not against Him. You're accepting His authority in all matters of life. Really, it's a false dichotomy to try to split your life into, well, this is the secular and this is the sacred. Really? (laughs) I got news for you. Everything is sacred. Can can you determine, well, you know, hey, come on, God made this, this whole universe. God gave you a job. He gave you your body. He gave you your mind. He gave you your emotions, your, your intellect, your, your soul, your spirit. He, he's given you your families, where you live, your possessions. It's all His. You can't separate the secular from the sacred. So we've got to choose Jesus in all areas of our life. And so my friend, as Jesus says here, the judgment of God is something that shouldn't be taken lightly because God is not to be taken lightly. You think about this. It's interesting that Jesus here is described as this this stone that becomes the cornerstone, the most important part of a building. And He's the one who is rejected. He's the one who's, who's going to come and crush those who reject Him. But it's interesting, when we fall on Jesus, the stone, we become crushed. Think about this. God is our judge. And so it's the same God who offers salvation now is the one who's going to be the judge in the future. You're not going to avoid Him. This isn't one of those things, you know, when when you get a court summons, you can't say, well, you know, sorry, I'm busy. No, when the judge summons you, you obey. Because you have no choice. So if you're not going to have Jesus as your Savior now, guess what? You will one day have Him as your judge. You're going to stand before His throne at that final day. And I can assure you, my friend, this is why I beg and I plead with you, if you are a non-Christian, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, humble yourself now. Willingly humble yourself before the King of the universe. Bow your knee before King Jesus. Refuse to love yourself 
Stop worshiping yourself and worship Him. Because if you don't do it now, you're going to be forced one day. You're going to stand before the judge of the universe and He's he's going to open the books. If your name is not written in the book of life, the Bible says you will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. I don't want you to go there. I don't want any of you to go there. So That's the choice. You can have Jesus as your Savior now or have Him as your judge later. So why not come to Jesus now? Why not become a part of His kingdom now before the time is too late? Because once we die, you know there is no second chance once you die, right? Do we all know that? You, you don't get a second chance. And if you don't believe me, read Luke chapter 16. There was the rich man who died and went to hell, the Bible says. By the way, he didn't go to hell because he was rich. He went to hell because he rejected Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus. Lazarus did. He goes to heaven. He's there with Father Abraham. And the rich man's in hell in torment, suffering in the flames. And he's saying, he knows there's no second chance. He knows he can't get out. So what does he do? He looks talks to Father Abraham somehow, some way. Would you send someone to my brothers? I, I can't get out of these flames. But at least send someone to my brothers so that they don't have to come to this place. There is no second chance. Your eternal destiny is determined here on earth now. So either you're going to accept Jesus as your Savior now, or you will have Him as your judge in the future, in the final day. Come to Him now. Join the kingdom. Work in the vineyard. Do the Father's will now, my friends. And the good news is, you know what? God rewards those who obey. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's a beautiful thing. God God commands you to do something. You're supposed to do it. And you get rewarded for doing what you're supposed to do. And the Bible says, for those those of us who have Jesus as our Savior now, in the future... The judge of the universe rewards believers. It's not a condemnation because Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not a time of condemnation at the judgment seat of Christ, but it's a time of reward for believers. You'll, You'll be given rewards. God knows what you've done in your body. It says whether it was good or evil, whether it's something of eternal value or is it just a waste of of time and effort and money. Which is it, my friend? You're going to spend your life on something that's going to be eternal value, something that's rewarded? Or are you going to blow it all now and find yourself standing for the judge of the universe and have have nothing to show for your life? That's your choice. So I exhort you, I encourage you, I beg of you to believe in Jesus. He is the King. He is the Messiah. He is this one who has the authority. And so we we have to believe what what He said here. We don't want to be like the chief priests, the elders. We don't want to question His authority. Let's believe and obey and follow wherever He wants us to go. Let's follow Him to the end.